Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here with us today. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with us to the book of Exodus. And as you do, if you are at all familiar with Christianity, you know or, or should know that one of the basic tenets of Christianity is, is the call upon believers to, to make disciples of all nations, to evangelize, to compassionately share the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people in the power of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of bringing them to Christ as Savior and Lord so they may in turn then go and share him with others. This is how God has designed to build and to advance his church. And I know of no one, including myself, who who doesn't get nervous, doesn't feel ill-equipped, and even at times have genuine fear when it comes to telling others about Christ and sharing our faith. So if that's you today, would, would really like to tell others about Jesus, desire to tell others about Jesus, but you're being honest and you're like, I feel like I'm ill-equipped to do that. I'm scared to do that. I'm afraid I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to mess something up. If that's you today, I pray that you will find encouragement through the text today. But to bring everyone up to speed, Moses has now gone before Pharaoh um, and the people of Israel, and he's delivered God's message, God's word to them exactly the way that God had told him and Aaron to do so, giving them exactly what they said, what he said. And The people of Israel, they believed. And then Pharaoh, he did not believe. And as a result of his unbelief, he brought even more affliction upon the people of Israel. And out of that affliction, they started to question God. They started to question the purpose of God. They started to doubt the faithfulness of God, started to doubt the sufficiency of God in fulfilling the promises that he had made, all because of the affliction and the circumstances that were upon their life. And out of those questions and out of those doubts comes God's response in the first nine verses of chapter six. God telling Moses and the people of Israel that they will see and they will know that he is the Lord. God reminding or teaching Moses of who he is as the all-sufficient and trustworthy God. And then out of that reminder, he says in verse six to Moses, say therefore to the people of Israel. And he follows with a seven part promise that is rooted in his character and rooted in his sufficiency, promising the people of Israel, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will, will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you. God promising all that he will do all of these things and kind of sign, sealing, and delivering this by saying, I am the Lord, the all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful God. I will do this. And after this, Moses gathers the courage to go before the people of Israel once again and tell them all that God has said, to lay out all the promises that God has set forth and said, I will, and I will, and I will. He goes before the people and he delivers these truths to them. And how do they respond in verse 9? Moses tells us, not well, not well. They hear all of these promises, all things that God has said he's going to do, and they did not listen. They didn't believe. Why? Verse 9 tells us, because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Their affliction, their suffering, their circumstances have broken their spirit to such a degree where they are having trouble believing and trusting in the promises of God. 
And that may be where you find yourself today. If that is where you find yourself today, questioning, broken, trouble believing the promises of God, then I would, I would encourage you to, to listen back to last week's message if you have not already. And I would be happy to set up a time to get together and talk with you and encourage you in any way that I possibly can. But after being rebuffed by the Israelites in verse 9, we pick up with Moses today in verse 10, and now he's going before Pharaoh. Now I'm going to tell you what we're about to read. is going to be a lengthy set of passages, but follow along with me, uh, preferably in your Bibles before you or on the screen if you do not have your Bible with you. Verse 10, chapter 6, So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Koath, Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, Shemai, by their clans. And the sons of Koath, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uzziel. The years of the life of Koath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malhi, Mushai. These are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zechari, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzavan, and Zithari. Aaron took as his wife Elshabah, the daughter of Aminadab and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's house, houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. 
The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, when I first began to, to look over this text, even kind of a, several weeks out and kind of looking ahead and knowing kind of what was coming, I'll be honest, when I, when I looked, I was genuinely like, what in the world am I going to do with this? I'll, kind of the first few verses, those first four, 10 through 13, and kind of gets off to a, a decent start right there of easily to understand in, in this mind of mine. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm following. And then all of a sudden, it's like, here's a genealogy. And it's like, what's up with this genealogy? It's even like coming from in the future back into this spot, kind of plug it in right here type of genealogy. It's like, what's up with this? And then the text gives a brief recap of kind of verses 10 through 13 when you move to the rest of chapter 6. And then after that, we move into chapter 7, and we, we see Moses and Aaron being prepared to go before Pharaoh once again. And it's from all of this that we end up with our four points for today. Starting with number one, that God's people are to deliver God's word. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. Again, so the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his hand, out of his land. It's the, the call to go in and to do what God has called them to do and to say what God has called them to say. And as we see a, a direct personal application here for, for, for God's call to his children, his followers in Matthew 28, 19, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Acts 1, 8, and you, will, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's people being called to share the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people all over the world. A theme that we have addressed several times in recent weeks, and we have addressed it several times in recent weeks because it continues to play itself out in the text that we are walking through. And like I said in my opening remarks, it is natural to see ourselves as being and feeling ill-equipped to do this, feeling ill-equipped to, to, to share our faith, to be ill-equipped to do what God is calling us to do. That's exactly what we see from Moses in verses 12 and 13. Moses throwing out two examples of why he sees himself as being ill-equipped to do what God has called him to do. One being his current circumstance. That can play an effect on us, can it? Our current circumstances, as his current circumstance finds him saying and asking, hey, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Thinking if the, if the people of Israel, the people who are most likely to listen to him are not going to listen, then how in the world is, is Pharaoh, who has already responded in unbelief, how's he going to listen to me? A genuine doubt and questioning that's coming into Moses' mind here. And I understand this. It's understanding to say, okay, if those people who, who seem to be the ripest fruit around us by our eyes, if the people who seem most likely to believe are not believing, then how in the world is the person who is the most unlikely person to believe going to believe? Those are doubts. Those are questions that naturally come into our minds. I, I understand that. doesn't make it right, but it's natural. And then two, he bases his the, the not listening on his belief that he is from uncircumcised lips, which is another way of him saying, I'm not eloquent of words and speech. He's already addressed this in previous chapters. He's saying, I'm not equipped to do this, God. 
They're not believing in me. I cannot do this. I'm not a public speaker. This is not my thing. Please get somebody else. And that's why God has already given him Aaron to be by his side. And again, I think it's natural to feel this way. I think it's even good to feel this way to some degree, especially when we begin to think about the task at hand. You think about the task that is placed before us, the call to go make disciples of all nations. Is that a small task? No, it's, it's a big task. When we begin to think about the magnitude of the task that is before us, it's like, this is big. This is way bigger than me. Who am I to do this? And then we begin to think, man, this is eternally important. Like souls are on the line here. Like this is huge. And then we start feeling like, what if I mess this up? And we genuinely have this fear of like, I don't want to mess this up. Realizing like, there's stuff I don't know. Like what if somebody asks me a question that I don't have an answer to? You ever felt that way? Like you're just scared to death wondering if somebody's going to ask you a question like you're not going to have an answer to. And like, then you're feeling like, who am I to do this? Who am I to do this? So in one sense, I believe this is both a natural and good place for Moses to be and for us to be because it's the reminder that even in our most, our most eloquent and persuasive words are not enough to soften a hardened heart or to bring a spiritually dead person to life in Christ. They're not. There is some real truth in saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. But, but our inadequacies, as large as they may be, and they may be large, aren't enough to absolve us of our responsibility to share and to deliver God's word. That's what we see in verse 13, with the Lord telling Moses and Aaron, this is what you are going to do. He's telling this is what you are going to do. The Lord hearing their excuse but dismissing their excuse. Now he's not dismissing them flippantly, but he's dismissing them nonetheless because he's promised to do everything. He's told them, I will do this. I'm doing all of this. All Moses and Aaron have to do is to go and to say what God has given them to say. Now the same holds true with us. But then what do we find ourselves doing? We get so worried about our inadequacies and our perceived past failures, and we forget what comes before Jesus saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what comes before, you shall be my witnesses. We forget that the Great Commission doesn't start in verse 19 of Matthew 28, but rather in verse 18 saying, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, go therefore. The therefore being therefore because it's pointing us back to the fact that Christ is the one who has all authority and that we are going out under his authority, not ours. And then we forget in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Not in your power, not in your strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. And that's what we can never forget. We're not going out under our own authority or sharing in our own power. That's futile. But under the authority and the power of the Lord, the constant reminder that God is with us and he promises he will bring out, he will deliver, and he will redeem his children. 
All we're called to do is to be faithful and to go make disciples, to teach people about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And what's crazy, what's absolutely crazy about all of this is how he uses ordinary people like us to do this. He uses ordinary people like us to do this. It's one of the big things that we should glean from a genealogy like this that we have in verses 14 through 25. Now, there's clearly way more in this genealogy than we have time to dive into today. But when we read a genealogy, genealogy like this, we need to understand these are ordinary people, ordinary people who put their pants on one leg at a time or their robe on one, whatever. Like, you get the point. You've got names like Ohad, Kohath, Mahlai, Mushai, I'm sorry, but there is no one, nothing about the name Mushai that is screaming out greatness and saying, Mushai, now that dude's got it going right there. He is going to be the premier evangelist right there, the premier priest. No, all these people, however, you know what they have in common? You know what they have in common with all of us in this room? Every single one of them is created in the image of God. They're created in the image and the likeness of God. God. And just like we are fallen image bearers, so are they. Created in the image and the likeness of God, and we are fallen image bearers. The genealogy reminds us of this. Just take the names Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, for example. Who are they? They're the three eldest sons of Jacob and the three older brothers of Joseph. And what do they do to Joseph? They sold him into slavery. Now, Reuben will try to say that he wasn't a part of that and that he kind of tried to look out. He's only looking out for his own interest. What we see is he's got some sinful brothers in here that are part of this genealogy. Then look at verse 15. And Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. And that's all we need to know right there to understand that Simeon sinned. Say that 10 times fast. He had a child with someone outside of the family of God. Not allowed. And then you've got Nadab and Abihu, woohoo! two eldest sons of Aaron. They'll be Levitical priests and will offer the wrong sacrifice before the Lord. The context tells us they're going to try to barge right into the most holy place of God uninvited. And what will result? They will be consumed by fire. What a genealogy, right? I don't know about you, but this genealogy comforts me. It's like taking your family to the state fair and you're like, well, we're all right. <laughs> like you just learned. Like, even, like here, these three brief, brief examples reminding us that there are no perfect people in God's family tree other than Christ. None. No perfect people in God's family tree other than Christ. Even the tribe of Levi, the tribe of the priests, the ones who will stand before God for, and his people as intercessors, making sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. The ones who will have a divinely appointed representative enter into the holies of holies on a special day of atonement to make an atoning sacrifice for sin. They, they, they still have sins that need forgiving and atoning. The reminder that no one can achieve perfection through the law. No one. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. And this is where I would encourage you to take time, like later this afternoon, sometime today, to read Hebrews chapter 7. 
The mysterious and wondrous Hebrews chapter 7 that's pointing us to the one who has no father or mother or, or genealogy, has no beginning or end of life, but resembling the Son of God continues as priest forever. Hebrews 7 talking about the mysterious Melchizedek, Melchizedek, but also, more importantly, talking about the one who arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who became a priest not on the basis of legal requirements, of genealogy or of law, but on the power of an indestructible life. This being Jesus, the guarantor of a better covenant. He's the one able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. How? How? By making intercession for them. Our high priest, Christ, is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, advocating for we who are his children, not based upon our merit, not based upon our works, not based upon anything we have done or will do, but completely 100% on his righteousness. Christ, the sinless son of God, having taken our sin upon himself, and placing his righteousness upon us, declaring us right before holy God. Oh, church, we could continue here for quite some time. But again, the reminder there are no perfect people in God's family tree other than Christ. So God doesn't require our greatness. He doesn't require our perfection from us to, to, to carry out this plan of redemption. No, that's already been fulfilled in Christ. And that should be our chief motivation in desiring to, to share Christ. Oh, how rich his mercy is for us. Oh, how lavish his love is for us that we want to make him known to others. We want others to know of this Christ and this love and this faithfulness. But if you're looking for an exemption from sharing the gospel, kind of like, a, like okay, I, this doesn't apply to me kind of text, you have none if your name is written in the book of life. You have none if your name is a part of God's family tree. If you are a child of God, you have been called to go make disciples of all nations. No exemptions. And what follows are some incredibly encouraging reminders. Whether it's going to a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a stranger, or across the globe. Starting with number, number two. God is sovereign over his word. A helpful reminder. A needless reminder. Look how we're reminded of Moses' excuse again in verse 30. With Moses saying, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? That's his excuse. That's his question. He's ill-equipped. The people of Israel won't listen to him. How in the world is Pharaoh going to listen to him? And what's the Lord's response? Chapter 7, verse 1. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Moses is God here, but that he's the one receiving God's word, and he's delivering it to Aaron, who is then responsible for sharing it. 
It means that these words have such authority that it might as well be God standing before Pharaoh and speaking because these words are in fact God's word, which is true every moment we read and open the text of the Bible, whether it's open in the text right now or in your private Bible study. It is literally God's word to us. Find yourself discouraged, needing encouragement, needing correction, needing a hear from a word from the Lord, open up the text and pray in the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal the text to you, what he is saying to you in the text. It's God's word to us. Thus the continued instruction in verse two. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But now imagine if you're Aaron here. Put yourself in Aaron's shoes. You're the one who's being instructed now to stand before Pharaoh and it's out of your mouth that the words, let the people of Israel go will come. Do you think he was nervous? I do. Do you think he was scared? Knees are probably shaken. Scared, nervous. But what did he understand? That he was a man under authority. He had no ability to stand up and say whatever came to his mind. He had to speak what God had given him to say and nothing less and nothing more. So do you think he went before Pharaoh and told a bunch of jokes and some funny stories? Did he put together an eloquent presentation, breaking down all the reasons why it would be a good idea to let Israel go and like a cost benefits analysis of how it's gonna benefit him here? No. What did Aaron do? He said exactly what God had given him to say. That's it. That's all he said. Again, that's why we preach and that's why we teach the way we do here at HPCC. Simply trying to deliver God's word to God's people to make the point of the passage, the point of the sermon and resting in the fact that God is sovereign over his word. Our only responsibility being to deliver and to teach God's word. And this goes for all of us. Every single one of us, our responsibility is to say what God has given us to say and to trust him with the results. And yes, there's a great mystery that comes with this. Our responsibility and God's sovereignty. People for centuries have lost a lot of sleep trying to figure this out. Like, how do I reconcile this? How do I reconcile God being completely sovereign and man still being completely responsible? How do I reconcile this? And here's the thing, you don't have to. They're friends. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which we have available out in the bookstall, writes, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught to us side by side in the same Bible, sometimes indeed in the same text. Both are thus guaranteed to us by the same divine authority. Both, therefore, are true. It follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other. God is 100% sovereign, church. He is 100% sovereign over his word. And we are 100% responsible to believe and to share his word. Both are equally true. Which brings us to a very important application question. What if we don't know his word? What if we don't feel equipped or equipped to share his word? Maybe we're in a spot of like, hey, I want to be obedient here. 
I want to share the gospel, Jeremy. I want to tell others about Jesus. I want to be about making disciples. But I'll just be honest, I don't know how to do that. Well, if that's you, I'm going to tell you something. I think you're in a great place. I think you're in a great place because you are humbly saying you want to share. You are saying, I want to do this. You want to learn, but you need help. That is a great place to be in. So what do you do? You take every opportunity to learn. You take every opportunity to learn. And I'll be the first to tell you, this is going to take work. It's not easy. It will require time. It will require effort. It takes time to learn. How do we learn anything? By, by, by taking classes, by reading books, by, by spending time with those who are, who are doing it, by observing, by, by practicing. Did you know how to swim the very first time you ever got in the water? No, none of us did. We don't just, now some take it more natural than others, but, but you don't just throw somebody in the water and be like, okay, swim. I guess they're going to learn one way or the other at that point, but that's not the best approach. I've taught many of the swim lessons But regardless of the age, there has been fear and trepidation at the start. Whether I have a little kid or sometimes the most fearful are the adults who don't know how to swim and they're getting in the water and they're like holding onto that life vest as tight as they can possibly hold onto it. Like, is this really snap? Like, there's something good about that. There's something good about having a fear and trepidation of the water. Why? Because it could kill you. You need to have some fear of that. What I get nervous about are the little kids who have no fear around the water, and they're just like, hey, deep into the pool, I'm diving in. And they just go into a cannonball, like, well, there they go. <laughs> Those kids make me nervous. But once you start practicing, once you start getting to swim, slowly but surely, everyone learns to swim if they get in the water and if they practice. Some become capable swimmers and are able to basically keep themselves from drowning. Fair enough. And others can become competitive swimmers. Now, some even that is on a different level. Maybe you're swimming on a high school level or a little junior club level. Not everybody's going to be a Michael Phelps swimming on the Olympics and breaking world records. But no one learns to swim without getting in the water. And no one learns to share their faith without sharing their faith and continuing to learn. We have to make ourselves learners. But learners who are trusting that our God will not let us drown. He is sovereign over his word. Even when we present it horribly and we feel like, I have just butchered this. I have just shared faithfully with this person, but I think they're going to walk away more confused now than they were before we had this conversation. And I'm, not, I'm saying this out of personal experience. Like, I feel like I have just preached my heart out, and I think people are walking away today more confused than ever. I'm having a conversation with a guy in a coffee shop, and I'm thinking, yep, I think I pretty much wrecked his worldview and left him in a spot where he has no idea what I'm talking about. And then it's like, God uses that. And it's like, how in the world? How in the world, God, do you use my mess ups and my failures here? How? Oh, it brings us to number three. Because God is sovereign over the receptivity of his word. I love this. He's not only sovereign over his word, he is also sovereign over the receptivity of his word. So picking up in chapter seven, verse three, the Lord tells Moses once again, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And as a result, he will not listen to you. Now, this doesn't mean Pharaoh isn't responsible for his unbelief. He is. 
but neither he nor we can soften our, our, our own hearts. Cannot happen. Again, a paradox that, that our finite minds are not meant to figure out. It should drive us to worship, not to contention. But think of this from Aaron and Moses' perspective. Being told they're going to go and they're going to deliver the message that God has them to deliver. But it will not be received by faith. We see the same thing being given to, to Isaiah and to Jeremiah. Their audience will hear, but they will not believe. That has got to be so discouraging. To know that you're about to go and you're about to faithfully share and just proclaim and preach and teach and no one's going to be converted. I, I, am, I cannot imagine what that would be like. I, I am so thankful for you all in so many ways. But in this particular context, I, I am particularly thankful for the reminders and the affirmations that God's word is not falling upon deaf ears. I am continually encouraged by hearing how God is working in your lives through the preaching of his word. Even in previous places of ministry, places that have proven extremely difficult, we have still seen fruit, people believing God's word. I cannot imagine having no one believe and being told on the very front end, hey, you're gonna go into this and no one is gonna believe. It's gotta be discouraging. But I'm reminded of the story of the Baptist missionary, William Carey, who left for India in 1793. And for the first seven years of his ministry, he experienced zero converts. For seven years in India, having felt this is exactly where the Lord is sending me, I'm packing up my family, we're all moving here. Seven years, he has no converts. What does he have in those seven years? He loses his son. Son dies. And then as a result, his wife experienced a total mental breakdown. It would not be until November 25th of 1800 that Krishna Paul, a Hindu carpenter, fell on a slippery bank while bathing, of all things. Goes and he seeks medical attention for a dislocated shoulder with the group that, Cal that Carrie is a part of. And while being treated for a dislocated shoulder, what happens? Carrie and the others share the gospel with Krishna Paul. A month later, Krishna Paul confessed that he believed and personally embraced Christ as his only hope in life and in death. And on Sunday, December 28, 1800, just a few days after his profession of faith, in the presence of a cloud of witnesses from Europeans to Hindus to Muslims, Krishna Paul was baptized in a local river making Paul the first of hundreds who were converted through Carrie's ministry. Paul then joining Carrie in heralding the message of the crucified and risen Christ until his death. Why? Because as Romans 10, 17 tells us, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Carrie shared Christ for seven years and no one believed but Carrie continued to share Christ. He continued to pray for those around him to come to know Christ. And seven years later, by the grace of God, Krishna Paul believed. Paul began to share Christ with others and others believed. So what are we to do? 
We are to preach Christ crucified. And we are to keep preaching Christ crucified. For the, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Therefore, we preach Christ and we don't stop preaching Christ and we leave the results up to the Lord. As the Lord tells, us, tells Moses in verse five, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. The Egyptians will know. Now, as we will see, they won't believe, but they'll know, which is the reminder that there is one day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Some of us an understanding that they are receiving the judgment they deserve for not believing, and others who are crying out to him as Lord, and thank you for your faithfulness and forgiving me. Thank you for your grace that I do not deserve. And now number four. God doesn't need our skills, but requires our obedience in delivering his word. Again, the paradox of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Yet despite all of Moses' fears and all of his questions and excuses, we come to verse six. And they did just as the Lord commanded them. And here's where we come to a very important reminder. There's a, there's a lot of reasons why we are to follow the Lord and obey his word, a lot. No doubt we should do it because we love him. I, I, absolutely, we wanna be motivated in our evangelism, in our works, in our zeal, by the, the lavish love that God has placed upon us. Motivated by love, yes. We should do it also because we love our fellow man, love God, love people. We want people to know Christ. Near and far, we want them to know Christ. We know the ramifications if they don't. We want them to know Christ. But when it comes right down to it, we're to go and we're to share and we're to make disciples because God has commanded us to go. He has commanded us to go. He hasn't said if you want to. He hasn't said maybe. He has said go. Which is the reminder that whatever excuse we're putting out there as to why we can't, is not sufficient. We have to get in the water. We, we have to learn. We have to practice. You may never be an Olympic swimmer, just as you may never be an Olympic evangelist, but it's just as you can learn to swim, you can also learn to share your faith. Remember, God hasn't called you to be graceful, hasn't called you to be eloquent. He has called you to be faithful. So maybe, maybe you're young. We have a lot of young ones who, who gather with us in our services, which I am so thankful for. Young ones, you are not too young to believe in Christ and you are not too young to share Christ. I have been humbly reminded from a many of children of the good news of the gospel from a childlike faith perspective. Oh, that we as adults we may learn from them. And for those who are, let's just say, a little bit more mature in age, you're never too old. Just look at verse 7. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. A reminder that we're never too old and we're never too young to do what God has called us to do. So when we get right down to it, are you a part of God's family tree? Are you a child of God? 
And if you answer no to that question, I want to ask you to repent of your sins and to believe in this God. To follow in the steps of Krishna Paul and thousands upon thousands and millions upon millions of others who have heard and seen and believed the truth of the resurrected Christ. Believe in him and claim him as your only hope in life and death today. And scripture tells us everyone who calls upon him in faith will be saved. But if your answer is yes, I am a child of God, then you are called to go and make disciples of all nations. You are to share and you are to teach and you are to proclaim. You are to pray for people near and far without any discrimination to come to faith in Christ. And you are to leave the results up to God. And where you feel ill-equipped, and there will be many of places where we will always feel ill-equipped, you work to grow and become more equipped. You read your Bible first and foremost. And then you go and you read good books that we have in the, in the books of Stahl and others. But then you say, well, Jeremy, but I'm, I'm not a reader. And maybe naturally that's not you. Maybe difficult for you. I, I, myself, I'm about a little under a 200 word a minute kind of guy. It takes me a long time to, to read. Well, my wife will read 800 to 1,000 words in a minute. And I can get frustrated at times. They're like, man, she's flying through this. And I'm, well, I'm still on the first page. But if you are a Christian, you must become a reader. For the simple reason, that's how God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. Another way to become equipped is to take classes. I'm teaching a class right now on Wednesday nights that just how to share your faith, pretty applicable to the text today. Still have two more weeks to go. And this week we're talking about overcoming like specific ob objections that people have. So if, if you're interested in being a part of that, we'd love to have you. We can get you more information. It's available on Facebook page and you can reach out to me. Another way to become equipped is just start doing it. Just start doing it, resting in the authority of God's word, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, telling people of the Christ that has saved you, trusting for the Lord to provide the results, knowing that you don't have to be eloquent and you don't have to be proficient. You don't have to have an answer to every question because even when you learn and learn and learn and learn, guess what? Somebody's still gonna ask a question that you don't have an answer to. And what you, what you say in that moment is, hey, that's a really good question. I don't know the answer myself. Let me get back to you. We can learn this together. There are no perfect people in God's family tree other than Christ. Let's rest in him today. Let's pray. Father, as we think about sharing our faith, as we think about telling lost people about you, we admit we have fears and insecurities. We fear how people will respond. We fear not having the right answers. We fear offending. And at the same time, we, like Moses, feel ill-equipped. We can't do this. So we ask you to give us a deeper confidence in, in your sovereignty and the word that you have given us to share. Help us not to trust in our words or our eloquence or our lack thereof, but to trust in you to bring fruit from the teaching and sharing of your word. 
Awaken spiritually dead hearts to a new life in Christ. Through the faithful obedience of your people, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to the preaching of God's word through singing and song together.